Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, hello, and welcome to the Indie Football Podcast. Welcome back, I should say. Uh, I am Ed Malian. Uh, this is uh, a very slimmed down episode today uh without a couple of the troops however i do have with me uh the chief sports writer of the independent jonathan lou say hello 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 and uh in the corner we have uh, producer matt murphy you may chime in on a couple of things we've also got mark critchley dialing in on the phone today uh where he was at manchester city versus chelsea yesterday um miguel delaney uh, couldn't get out of bed in time so we are recording without him um he did try and, and see if we could let him call in um, but I've decided that that would be setting a bad precedent and he'd try and do it every week. So we carry on uh, after, I guess, su- Sunday's second game is the big weekend talking point. You know, Chelsea-Man City, uh, it was certainly the best game of the weekend going into the weekend. And what we come out of it with is a 1-0. It was 1-0 in the end, wasn't it? It felt like a 7. But Well, the, the talking point is Chelsea, really, because we've we've talked about Manchester City. We've talked about them to death that we've talked about them the same way they've they've played other teams to death um but Chelsea's tactics I think fairly or not have been quite roundly criticized afterwards and uh that's probably the talking point were Chelsea uh you know over cautious did they show a lack of ambition were they not playing for the manager uh it's, it's hard to it's hard to make that point but they did show a, a stunning lack of enterprise in that second half um I will ring Critch about this later, get his view from from the game. But first, uh, this is the second Man City-Chelsea game of the season where City have been utterly dominant. Now, the, the fixture at Stamford Bridge, they were in that purple kit and it was like a purple blanket had been kind of tossed over the entire Chelsea team. They were pinned back. I've not seen a team as subservient to the Guardiola's Man City as, as this Chelsea. And it's curious because... I think Conte is tactically and strategically a very good coach. I think he often picks the perfect game plan. Now he, uh, you know, as a coach of great repute, is a guy who's chosen this method. He thinks this is the best chance of of getting a result. And I guess, you know, keeping it to one nil and then trying to nick one on the counter or a set piece, whatever, probably was his close his best chance of doing it. But it just didn't feel quite right. Do you not think? No, exactly. I mean. Is that the way champions are supposed to play and all that kind of stuff? What I would say is that how are you meant to play against Manchester City? Everybody has tried a different approach and this came within one goal of, of actually coming off. And you'd say if Chelsea had come away from, from that with a nil-nil or even possibly nicked a goal on a break, then it would have been a stroke of genius. It, uh, you know, As Conte said, they didn't get thumped 3-0 or 4-0 like Arsenal and the questions asked would have been of the same amplitude but just slightly different questions. I think there's also a... So a lot of the criticism I saw yesterday was uh, fairly inevitably, I guess, Manchester United fans saying that if if Jose Mourinho had set out a team like that, we'd all be crucifying him. Um, 
I, can't, I, I, I get the point. I don't think it, it's fair with Conte because we've seen that Conte has so, uh, such a diverse range of game plans that he can use. Um, and, and you think about when he's gone up against stronger teams than him, but he's seen that the best way to win is to take the game to them. Uh, most notably, I guess, like Italy, Belgium at the Euros is one where you don't expect a team to come out and press so high like that against a team that's so vastly superior to them. But if he sees a, a little chink in the armour, then that's usually what he goes for. What I took away from this game, really, apart from Chelsea's lack of ambition and the fact that Conte does, I mean, if you wanted to know Conte was going to go, this felt like it, you know, it felt like there's no desire there. But Manchester City are every bit as dominant as the like the peak Bayern Guardiola teams that we saw maybe in that semi-final in the Champions League against Atletico Madrid when they had like 80% possession or the peak Barcelona teams that used to have, you know, that sort of possession. He has made, in just over a year and a half, Manchester City into a team that p- plays exactly the style he wants, which is a sign of a remarkable coach. Yeah, well, they have a they have a gift, Guardiola's teams, of making other teams look lethargic by the fact that, well, you can't both have the ball. And in order to go and get the ball off them, you have to take risks. Um, and so Chelsea probably looked a, a lot more anemic than they were. You could argue that they were simply carrying out their game plan to, to the letter. Mm-hmm. And as we've seen in the two Chelsea City games this season, I think there's something about that five at the back or that, that three at the back, which is particularly vulnerable to a Guardiola team just because they stretch the pitch so high and they try and overload you on the flanks. And then when you when you do get the ball, you're essentially, uh, you know, with you essentially got five at the back rather than four, so you have one fewer player to to get in the break, as it were. And also, and, and the other thing is that, that they miss Kante, who, who covered a, a hell of a lot of ground. Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of a couple of good points there. I think the fact that they they do stretch the field against you, so you've got that five strung across the back, and, and that you saw it quite obviously with Alonso kind of really tucked as a left back, basically rather than the wing back that you're used to, which is not his best position. No, no, he's not more as natural there I think um, so you've got that five strung across the back but what happens is they have the ball in wide areas you have to commit bodies to wide areas and then when they ping the ball back centrally which is a, obviously a far more dangerous zone in terms of actual scoring they've got several number 10s in there who can, can pick these passes who can make things happen obviously De Bruyne but you've got guys like Silva and Bernardo Silva who can drift centrally and they just make things happen and you know when you've got a deep lying playmaker like um, I can never pronounce it correctly but I think it's like Gundogan Gunduan. Gunduan. Yep. Um, it's incredibly tough to play against. Uh, and th- there's a clip that I saw being shared on, on social media and like about 74 minutes in where Chelsea's players basically aren't running for the ball. Yeah. But I talked to, uh, when I was in Spain, I talked to a coach about, we were talking about all sorts of, of different stuff and it ended up we were talking about playing against the uh, Guardiola's Barcelona because it was actually for a player-focused thing I was doing but it was interesting. He said, my players have never been so tired because the amount of running you have to do all game to keep up with with them basically they're pinging the ball around they're not running they're walking a lot of the time but you are running because you're trying to close down those spaces and I think Chelsea might just have been completely shagged out by the end of that uh, it did look on you know in 74 minutes they're trying to conserve their energy because it's like okay we might be able to nick a goal if we go for it in the last five the big thing I think Conte has, has struck out on here is Eden Hazard has not worked as a central forward in any way. No, it's it seems like he's he's resorted to that as a as a in in, in the absence of of any better options and and the failure of Morata probably has to be top of the list. 
I mean, if if you look at that clip, and and again, I am wary of extrapolating any kind of conclusions about a ninety-minute performance from like a twelve-second clip that that's been doing the round mm-hmm. on social media, mm-hmm. and and we'll hear from Critch, who, who obviously saw all ninety minutes yeah, later. Yeah. City were also walking; they were they were just walking with the ball. Uh, th- there was there's like you said uh, a real physical challenge that any team faces when when you're playing City, and if you need to conserve energy, then quite frankly, when the other team have got the ball and are just, are just recycling it around midfield aimlessly, is probably the time to do it. Um, I'm not sure it shows a lack of ambition. I, I, I would, uh, you know, I would again disagree with those Mourinho comparisons because I don't think Mourinho was criticised for his approach against City that much. Mm. Not certainly not as much as he was for, for the approach against Liverpool, yes. which are, which are you know are a team that you actually can get at. So the criticism there has been. I think determined by the level of the opposition, and so when you're coming up against a team like City, you are really limited in the approaches you can take. How would you set up a team if if you were going to play against Manchester City? Um, obviously, you, there's so, so many things you actually have to take into account in terms of the personnel you have and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. But roughly, what's the sort of game plan you'd be looking to do? Would it not be, I think, vaguely similar to what Conte did? You know, you try and keep it tight for 80 minutes and see if you can nick one of the last 10. Yeah, I mean, I. I <laughs> Uh, I would possibly play two up front and try and hit them in the channels when they're when their fullbacks tuck in, and they can be exposed that way. Yeah, yeah. When they, when their fullbacks either tuck in or, or when they when they go on the overlap, there is a there's a bit of space down the down the flanks that you can you can possibly exploit if you if you get the ball up there quickly and you have somebody who can who can run those channels. I'm not sure Hazard is necessarily best suited for that for that sort of role because he's his in, instinctive run is towards the centre mm. of the pitch. So, again, it, it's one of those where Chelsea, Chelsea's style is probably not best suited to, to hurting City. But then, as we've seen so so far this season, who is? I think uh, my, my biggest issue is that I would have played Morata. I would have played him. I know he's hopelessly out of form. Uh, but you saw even in uh, the game last week against uh, Man United, was that? He he had one. There's one moment where he, he turns the man. He finishes brilliantly, but then he's given offside. And you know he, he's a player that obviously needs a goal to get him back on track. And and so you've seen that he's still got. There's still something there. There's still something behind the eyes. There's still a spark, a flash. I think he's fundamentally, even if his finishing isn't that good, he's a very good footballer. He's he's very good at link up play, and that's why I would have played him through the middle, even if he's not scoring goals at the moment. I would have played. Hazard one side and probably Willie on the other because I think he's an underrated player who's in quite good form himself. He's much faster than you expect. I don't know if it... When I watch him, I don't know if it's because I, I think the afro is going to slow him down. I don't know if... But he is much faster than you expect, both in person and then... I was watching him on, on TV and he, he's he got you know a, a real top speed uh, on him. So I, I probably would have played that system because I think Murata will come good and I think he will link the play with Hazard and, and the other guys even if he's not scoring, he will get them in positions where they can score. We're at the moment, playing Hazard as a central player, utterly pointless. Well, w- Willian is is probably he's probably a top ten player in terms of pace, uh, in terms of finishing, in terms of movement. But because he's he's not really in the top two or three in any of them, I think he's he's quite easily underrated. the The real question is whether where he fits into whether you can play Morata, Hazard and Willian. Because if you remember at the start of the season, we were all talking about this 
relationship, this chemistry that Morata and, and mm. Hazard were building up together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, obviously, obviously, that got interrupted by Morata's injury, uh, but they were on an incredible run of form at the start of the season. Now, if that's the sort of relationship that is is winning you, so you know, is winning you games, why wouldn't you try and work on it and try and give them as many minutes as possible? Yeah. And in that early part of the season, it, it's you know, Willian was spending a lot of time on the bench, so I, I wonder whether the balance is still quite right. Whether whether Conte has worked out, well, number one, whether Conte has worked out whether he can play the three of them together and how they play together, and number two, whether he's even fussed about doing it. I even think Willian would work as a wing back in that system. Just he's, I mean, he probably doesn't have the defensive kind of desire, no, but, but he works hard. But he, his energy levels and his speed. Kind of two of the key things that I think, if you look at all the guys that he, t- he tends to play there, um, you know, he doesn't like using Azpilicueta in that role because he hasn't got the speed to get behind. Um, whereas Azpilicueta is kind of obviously slotted in nicely in a central defender's role. Mm. But yeah, I think the Hazard Morata thing is, especially like what's the most impressive performance of the season, probably the away win at Atletico Madrid. And, and that game was almost entirely about the, the link up between those two players. They consistently created chances and it was the understanding like where Hazard kind of steps over the ball carries on his run Morata's first touch is a little flick around the corner to Hazard that's something that that's not easy to build up that sort of understanding and they seem to have it quite quickly at the start of the season so I think it it probably is I guess maybe it's just a symptom of the whole thing kind of breaking down a little bit under Conte at Chelsea something which we'll we'll see more of I guess as the season winds down. Um, probably now is the time to uh, dial up Critch, so I will just get him on the phone. I think he's going to be there. Hello, mate. Hello, Critch. How are you? Yeah, I'm all well, thank you. All good. So, Manchester City, once again, uh, ludicrously dominant, but uh, as we've been discussing in the studio here, Chelsea, the big story, and particularly their, their approach. So, what do you make of it? Yeah, should we talk about the video first? I'm sure we've all seen this video by now. City have a free kick in Chelsea's half. Zinchenko and Silva, I think it is, are standing five yards apart. Pass the ball to one another five or six times, completely unopposed. Chelsea's players put no pressure on them. Fabregas walks up to it as if to close them down and then almost remembers, oh wait, I'm not actually supposed to be doing this. I mean, it's um, it was just kind of astonishing, the approach. And... Uh, that little example of it was something that is easy to miss when you're filing 800 words or so on the final whistle, but it sums up more than anything else just how bizarre the whole game plan was from Conte. Um, the message from the players and him, Conte himself afterwards was that Chelsea played how he had set them up to play, but you can't imagine that if he'd seen that same little video clip that he's happy with it. Uh, so I think what you saw was, yes, a manager who took the wrong approach, selected the wrong personnel to carry it out as well, uh, but also it was a team that expects their manager to leave come what may at the end of the season and it's therefore struggling to motivate itself. Um, before the match, Guardiola was talking about what Conte would leave to English football almost as if he'd already gone and much like after Lukaku scored at Old Trafford uh, last weekend, this kind of zombified Chelsea team returned. And the question is how a manager who's supposed to be on his way out at the end of the season brings that team back to life. And how was how was Conte post-match? Because I'm interested in hearing what he had to say. Yeah, Conte post-match, I think we have to remember yesterday the tragic news about David Astori, one of his former players at international level, 
and how that might have affected him. Um, Conte wore black armband on the touchline and he answered questions on a story very sincerely, very somberly in his interviews after the match. Um, he said it was difficult to talk about football. Maybe he was finding it difficult to think about football as well. All round a difficult day for him and that has to be remembered. I suppose from what he said regarding the match, the standout quote would have to be that he said it would be stupid to play in any other way against City. Um, and as Miguel Delaney, my esteemed colleague, pointed out to me yesterday, that would make Jurgen Klopp stupid because he played, he took the exact opposite approach from what Conte did yesterday. And he's the only Premier League manager to take three points off City this season. So there must be something in what Klopp did. There must be something in the way Liverpool approached that game back in January. Um, I was at the game against the AFL Cup semi-final against Bristol City, where they pressed City centre-backs and they got a bit of joy out of that as well. Shakhtar did it. I think Burnley did it too in their three games against them this season. They got a draw at Turf Moor. I think um, the question of the approach stuff comes down to the fact that apart from Wigan, no team has successfully sat deep and hit City with a sucker punch this season. And even Wigan only did it when they were against 10 men. Um, City's players have said, or they've at least suggested on a few occasions, that they're comfortable playing against that kind of approach and the results would seem to back them up. So it seems to me that in order to stand a decent chance of taking something against this side, you have to risk something. Uh, if Chelsea had done that, we might be talking about a 4-0 or a 4-1 defeat, but equally, we might have been talking about a surprise win. OK, and given you're up in the north, I might as well just get you on Liverpool tomorrow. That tie is, is completely over with Porto. They smashed them in the first leg in Portugal. But do you think Klopp will, will go out and completely play the kids with United at the weekend? Uh, or do you think he's going to try and keep some first-teamers in there? Um, I don't think so. I've just come out of Jurgen Klopp's press conference at Anfield and he ruled out what he called real rotation. And the thing is, he doesn't have to make changes if he doesn't want to, even with United to come this weekend. Um, he took a lot of flack back in the winter, if you remember, for making more changes than any other Premier League manager by a margin of like 30 or something ridiculous. But that rotation then has meant that the lapses in form and fitness that we've seen in winters past under his management at Liverpool they haven't come to pass this year. You look at the squad now, barely any injuries, Klein's coming back, otherwise all fine. Everyone looks fit, able to play twice a week. So he's been vindicated in that regard and it gives him the luxury of being able to go in with a settled side if he wants to tomorrow. Okay, thank you. Mark Critchley, Northern football correspondent, uh, doing a great job as ever. Johnny, before um, we move on from Man City, Chelsea, the league's done. We're fair to say, I think. Yeah, the league's done. The league's done. Man City in the Champions League, probably through, having blitzed Basel in that first leg. Do you think this looks like a team that could win the Champions League? City? Yeah. Yes. I mean, the caveat being that it's a cup competition. Yeah, and it's difficult. More than half the time, I would say. and You'd probably want to consult Miguel on this, but more than half the time, I think the best team in the competition hasn't won. And City are... Well, what is it? One, two, three, four, five, five games away, and they're basically going to have to. They're basically it's basically five games to win the Champions League. Yeah, and they're probably going to have to win most of them. I mean, well, I mean, the thing is, I'm trying to look at teams that could knock them off. I'm not sure Mourinho's. You know, I mean, it would be epic if they did. If Mourinho's United knocked them out in like a Champions League semi, it would be probably an all-time sort of. Champions League clash, wouldn't it? Yeah, but how, how many Champions League winners are there in that in that squad? 
Very well, few. Yeah, I, I think it's just a... It, it's that big game thing where you've got to you've got to perform in, in games like that. You've got to perform over two legs. You've got to get through. I think Guardiola's team would fancy themselves against anyone in Europe in a kind of knockout basis. But there's still always that little bit of doubt. You only need basically one bad penalty decision or whatever. You know, we've seen it with all like the, the nanny red card or, or whatever. These things can, can go awry. I think the only team that really could legitimately say that they are at the level of them or, or going to be better than them is probably Barcelona. But even Barcelona have tailed off in, in recent weeks. Mm-hmm. I mean, the win against Atletico has basically sealed La Liga for them, I guess. If they had lost that game, on uh, when was it Saturday night Sunday 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 afternoon it was if they'd lost that game I think it would have been much tougher for them because they're going to have to concentrate on La Liga again as well as the Champions League now I think we can say La Liga's done like the Premier League so those two can concentrate on the big thing because you know the Copa del Rey final uh, is not going to be the be all end all for Barca Hiring for your small business if you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn you're looking in the wrong place That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Do you want to talk a little bit of Arsenal Brighton before we we move on to uh, absolutely our European corner today. Um, I guess we've done Wenger to death, so should we just focus on Brighton instead? Um, what a performance! I mean, what a what a, a job that Chris Hutton's done with them. Chris Hutton, who was brought in, remember to to battle against relegation, the, the, the Sammy Herpia experiment that went dreadfully wrong. Um, they saw they saw Herpier as, as as a kind of low low downside, high upside guy. You know, after his time in Leverkusen, which didn't go that well, but it's you know, if Herpier is as good as we think he could be, then he could get us into the Premier League. It did not work out. They're in a relegation battle. Chris Hutton comes into battle relegation. So really, it should be no surprise that what he's done so successfully this season is battle relegation well by keeping a team tight. They did struggle for goals until January. But Glenn Murray, since that tax arrest, has suddenly started scoring goals no end. Jurgen Lacardia, club record signing, £14 million from PSV Eindhoven, got his first goal the other week. And uh, uh, what's his name? Leonardo Ojoa came in as well, who is a guy they all know, is a, just more depth of the striking position. So they now have just more bodies. They have guys they can throw on, and sometimes that's just what you need. So what has impressed you about Brighton? The calmness, I think. I mean, I, I read a, a piece that Amy Lawrence did for The Guardian about... Um, am I allowed to mention that? Yeah, of course, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was a great piece where she, she essentially talked to people. A friend of indie football, Amy Lawrence. Oh, yeah. Uh, and essentially what came through was after their slightly rocky start, people were writing them off. People were saying there's not enough goals in the team. They they didn't panic. They didn't hit the eject seat on, on Hewton like a lot of chairmen would have done. They kind of trusted in results. They're sorry, they trusted in the process and the results came. When January came, they obviously needed to strengthen in a couple of areas. So they brought in Lacardia. Uh, you know, is, is Chiedo has come good for them. And I suppose you know, one of the things about Hewton as as a manager is, you know, having 
I remember, I remember asking about this last season when he was in the, in the championship. You know, how do you maintain a kind of a, a long term strategy? How do you how do you build a club in a league in, a, in an environment where managers are just getting fired left, right, and centre when you're basically judged on your next three mm-hmm. results? And his answer was essentially that obviously you know the environment you're working in, but you almost kind of have to pretend that you're there for the long term. You have to build for the long term, even though you are aware in the back of your mind that you could, you know, get the bullet. It is a fundamentally well-run club as well. The people around him are are guys who think about stuff analytically. You know, Tony Bloom's background uh, is very numbers-based. It's very analytical. That's how he made a lot of his money, if not all of his money, is by looking at things, as you say, process rather than results, you know. And... I think you can say their recruitment has been very good, if not outstanding. I think Pascal Gross, we talked about a, a few times, three million euros. Um, you won't get much better value. You basically you don't get a Premier League player for two million pounds these days. It just doesn't exist. So, what they've managed to do there by bringing in one of the top creators in the league, uh, or at least chance creators in the league, um, a lot of them weren't converted in the first half of the season. But Gross has been outstanding. Is Kiedo, as you said, has, has settled a bit more, come good. Brilliant interview with him in the Sunday Times at the weekend, um, which I, I'd recommend searching out if, if you enjoy a, an in-depth but fascinating football interview. Uh, Jurgen Licardio, we, we can't say he's been a success yet, but they went, you know, it kind of is an example of how under the radar they fly and how quietly they tend to do stuff, Brighton. They spent £15 million on a striker, a club record for a striker in January, and no one basically noticed. You know, how, how many people do you have talking about the Lacardia deal? Whereas when Fulham signed, and this is my direct uh, comparison, Kostas Mitroglou, that was huge fanfare. It's, we signed a Champions League striker. You know, he's going to fire us to safety. They went down. He was terrible. Whereas Lacardia, again, a Champions League striker. PSV's won league titles, whatever. I think he's a Dutch international. Not that that means as much as it used to. But <laughs> he, you know, is a, a bit of a coup, really. But I get... Th- it's almost the Chris Hutton way, you know, and the way that the rest of the club does it. They want to keep a low profile. They're going to do things very effectively. And they're on 34 points now. Mm. Can you see a way they don't step? Well, they, 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 they do things based on evidence, don't they? And yeah. they could very easily have, have dipped into the loan market and signed Daniel Sturridge like West Brom did. And there would have been a big fanfare and people would be talking about them. Mm-hmm. And, well, it would have worked out possibly how it's, how it's worked out for West Brom. Yeah, they're on 34 points now. I don't think... They'll need to get to forty, just because there will be there will be three teams that that don't get there. Uh, so, I think it's it's possible to it's possible to, for them to start um, to start looking to next season. Their, f- their fixtures are tough. This is one thing. The one uh, caveat is that yeah, they look at where they are now. Their running is the hardest, by far the hardest of, of any other team. They play Everton away next, uh, then Leicester at home, but then in April. Home against Huddersfield. Actually, I mean, this, this actually they're going to get a couple more points from these games. Home against Huddersfield, away against Palace, and then they finish with Tottenham at home, Burnley away. Uh, let me just loading the next page. Man United at home, Liverpool away. So the last four games are all against very very difficult teams who may have you know, possibly FA Cup finals and Champions League finals to prepare for and may have wrapped up top four status. Yeah, I mean, the mo- you don't know. Their motivation could be 100% or it could be virtually zero, depending on where they are. You know, if they've sacked off the league by that point because they're going to be secure and they've just got a Champions League semi-final or whatever to focus on, 
it's going to be interesting. Obviously, one of those games is a derby against Palace. If they beat Huddersfield... Not a derby. Well, you wouldn't know. Uh, If uh, they beat Huddersfield at the start of April, they're in. They're in. I think it's an incredible success to have stayed up because there have been times when they looked dead this season, I thought. Um, But what they could be is, you know, this season reminds me a bit of that that Crystal Palace season when they got to the FA Cup final and were fifth at Christmas and ended up finishing 10th or whatever it was. Um, There are so many teams in that that mixture that there's going to be a team who finishes 10th or 11th who weren't actually that good and the expectations for next season are going to be significantly raised now Brighton have got a FA Cup quarterfinal is it or semi-final against Manchester United as well it's a quarterfinal quarterfinal so if they were to get you know like FA Cup semis and and finish 10th incredible first season in the Premier League but you might have overraised expectations at any other club it's up to Brighton who are otherwise a very analytically minded club to see if they do temper their expectations um, but either way, it's been a, a great season for them so far, right? Oh yeah, and and it, it could very easily go wrong for them next season. You you never know. But um, Sam Allardyce could be could be their manager by Christmas. I don't think Sam would be up their street. Uh, they, they, what they do have though, you know, if they've got another year of Premier League money, and the way they recruit seems to be smarter than most of the clubs in the league. If you've got a bit more money to put behind it, they could go out and genuinely get legitimately excellent players. Yeah. So they're interesting to watch. So uh, if you're a Brighton fan, I hope you enjoyed that. A nice bit of focus. Um, just before we go, I guess we should talk uh, Italy. Um, I mean, first of all, the sad news. Uh, Davide Astori, the captain of Fiorentina, of course, came through the Milan uh, youth system. Uh, a lot, lots of the tributes rolled in. Senza parole, which is the, the opening gambit and all of them pretty much, uh, without words. And I think... Uh, it's always very surprising when uh, a footballer in their prime dies like this, and we've we've seen it before. Uh, Antonio Puerta, Denny Harke, who was of course remembered by the Spanish World Cup winners, uh, Mark Vivian Foe, um, these players who, in the prime of their careers, with no seem seemingly no health problems or whatever, guys who are given the best possible medical care at every juncture, and who are fitter than you or I could ever dream of being suddenly dropped dead it's always a very difficult thing to process yeah well this is the this is the tragedy of it really and this is I think why it's such a strange sensation even if you you didn't know him personally or weren't a Fiorentina fan people drop dead in all countries of the world at all ages for all different sorts of reasons some of them very suddenly but I think one of the reasons that so many millions billions of people go to football is that this sort of sensation of of immortality that what you do on the football pitch and the people that perform these feats will somehow are somehow timeless you don't expect them to succumb to the same forces of of mortality and, and ill health that that you know us regular mortals do i think that there's a kind of there's a sense in which these guys are, are are the very best of us. Maybe just a, a kicking a ball around, but yeah, you know, we invest so much in them. That's why I think it's so shocking that yes, he's in the prime of life, but to so many thousands of Fiorentina fans, he would have been something more than just just a just a guy. Yeah, and it, it's even you know like uh, if if you see the reaction of like a kid when they see someone 
like Lionel Messi, you know, in person. It is as if they have seen, like you say, like a superhero. It is, it is something in them that is not just put on a pedestal. It is like as if they are a different life form. Mm. Um, you know, we even see it with, you know, the whole Ronaldo-Messi debate. Part of the reason that's, that becomes so heated is because both sides have almost like religious-like following. Like these people are deified. Um, and, you know, and there is this expectation that these guys are all incredibly healthy and incredibly fit and this could never happen. So whenever it does, it's always uh, a pretty chilling sort of moment where it, it brings you back down to earth a little bit. Um, the rest of the weekend of Serie A was cancelled. Um, I knew the Gen- the Genoa game, uh, a lot of his former teammates at Genoa obviously didn't want to play. And the uh, Fiorentina game against Udinese was off. So I think they just decided... It's best for everyone to cancel it all because you know there's going to be a lot of people that affect it because there's guys who came through the youth system with him at Milan and guys who played with him wherever played played with him for Italy national team yeah um, so I think that was the right thing to do um, I also think the right thing to do is is to talk about Serie A and the football because I think he uh, you know was a guy who by all accounts loved football and Serie A is the only active title battle in in the top European leagues. Or can we still say that after Saturday night's result with Napoli? What do you think? Well, I think that Napoli had a chance to to go six points clear. If they had won and Juventus, as they were for, for most of the game at Lazio, uh, I saw quite a lot of that game. Uh, if, if they had failed to win, Napoli would have, would have had a huge... You know, one foot on one foot on the Scudetto. That, that's not a phrase. That's not a thing. One hand on. We the can Scudetto. make it one. Yeah. Um, we'll just coin it. If you coin it, it'll get into literature somehow. And I wonder if that that kind of last minute goal by Dybala, you know, that, that incredible celebration. You, you you saw you saw Buffon running a hundred yards from his own goal to yeah, to yeah. celebrate with the Juve fans. I wonder if that moment was was one of the decisive moments in in that title race because you know that Napoli would have seen that result and that that well that collapse i think is the only really real word we can we can use for it that you know capitulation against against roma uh it was heartbreaking as well because i mean i i was in an italian restaurant which had the, the game on in a very fortunate twist of fate and uh the insigne goal early on this uh Cengiz under who can't stop scoring brilliant bloody goals looks like quite a player i'm, I'm quite looking forward to seeing more of him but it's just that there is this feeling that, you know, because Napoli do everything in such a perfect way in terms of that their football really is arguably the best in Europe, arguably better than, than Guardiola's team. But there is the thing is that there isn't the fragility. I, th- I think that Manchester City are insulated because no one's going to come in and take all these beautiful players away. And the thing with Napoli is you know that this might just be a one-season thing. That, that you feel like they are, they are encased in a very thin glass and someone's going to break the glass and come in and take at least one of those players in the summer, maybe two, maybe three, maybe the coach. And what was a beautiful thing for just one year will be gone. And uh, it would have been nice if, if they could have broken Juve's kind of run of titles, which has made Serie A a little monotonous. I mean, th- that we've had a a title battle there, I think, is good. But as a neutral, you can't help but feel disappointed if Napoli can't rally back and, and make this yeah I mean it would it would be a, a massive shame but I think even though it's still you know the, the race is still is still on it's there's a kind of we almost suspect 
you know, deep down that Juve, Juve are going to pull something out of the fire. And I think I think the reason for that is because subconsciously we we play our roles. Mm. We know what our role is. And I think I wonder whether Napoli can overcome this idea that they are the destined to be the the glorious losers that everybody loved. Yeah, I mean, I, there are fan bases I think that even prefer that sort of being cast in that role. Um, I guess it is the weekend. It is the weekend that the the title races died. That that Barca Atletico game was so big because you really felt like Atletico could do it. But I was disappointed in Simeone's approach in the same way that I was disappointed in Conte's approach. I think it was a game more so for Simeone even that where being brave would have been rewarded. Mm. And and he's a coach who I mean when he came first came in there he more than anyone else found a way to disrupt the way Barcelona play better than any coach almost that's kind of been tasked with taking them on. He he was kind of brought in to help try and rip down the house that, that Guardiola and Rijkaard built and he succeeded in many ways. And it was just this Simeone team that's they've gone on a great run to get close to the title but they don't quite have the same aura about them as the one even two, three years ago. And I think it is eventually going to come to an end what they're doing there. I do worry about the financials of the club as well with the way that they're desperately selling all these players to China and that the investors are trying to get their money back as well. Um, doesn't bode well. Um, just before we go, any other business? Uh, get out should have one best picture. Uh, interesting. Um, if you're into football documentaries, um, Copper 90 just uh, released a new series called Derby Days. Um, this this series is based in Spain. There's a new one from Spain every Sunday this month. And the first one I saw uh, on Thursday night, I uh, got a first look at it before it was released on Sunday. And it's a brilliant piece on the Galician Derby, Deportivo La Coruña and Celta Vigo. Uh, it's, they're only half an hour episodes and they're just brilliantly made. And uh, if you're into just interesting football content, then that is for you. And to be honest, if you're listening to this, um, you're probably on the same wavelength. So, um, Johnny, uh, before we go, I'd like to say thank you for coming today. Thank you. I'd like to thank um, Critch, our Northern correspondent, for, for phoning in again. Uh, hopefully, you can make that a fairly regular occurrence because otherwise he's a bit out the loop up there. He's been phoning it in for years. <laughs> um, thank you to producer Matt Murphy in the corner who will edit this uh, and make us sound uh, far more perfect than we are. Uh, thanks also to... Um, we had some kind emails this week um, complimenting us on the podcast. So you know who that you know who you were. Uh, thank you for that. Um, we will be in touch about the winner of the Sevilla shirt competition, um, which we'll dissect a little more uh, next week. And uh, until then, I guess. Huh? Subscribe. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Subscribe, rate, review, and we'll see you next week. Goodbye.